Hello, welcome to the Sex Within Marriage Podcast. My name is JD and I blog over at uncoveringintimacy.com. And today I have something a little different for you than what we usually podcast about. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, my pastor in my home church approached me, myself and two others in our church and asked if we'd be willing to preach this month. Uh, none of us are pastors, we're not even elders, uh, but he wanted us to preach something encouraging because 2020 had been a strange and uncertain sort of year. And this last month is likely going to be no less strange and uncertain. Uh, this is a time of year when many of us are nearly overwhelmed with family, friends, and social gatherings. And this year, we're all largely going to be probably confined to our homes with lockdowns due to COVID and everything else. So I think he's right. I think it's a good time for some encouragement. And so today I thought I'd practice my sermon that I'm going to preach this weekend and uh, just kind of hopefully give you some encouragement too. And at the end of the day, what I want to be able to tell you is that, you know, everything that you're going through, it's all worth it. You know, all of this is, it's, it's okay, or else it will be okay. And that's what I'm going to try to get across today. Now, those who know me know that I'm a bit of a rebel. I mean, who else starts a sex blog and podcast? So while I'm going to do my best to encourage you today, I'm going to take sort of a roundabout way to get there, if you don't mind. So bear with me, and we'll get through this all together. And first, I wanted to tell you, you know, there's this old Jewish story of a poor man who lived with his wife and his six children in one very small one-room house, and they're always getting in each other's way, and there was so little space, you know, they could hardly breathe. And finally, the man couldn't stand it anymore. He talked to his wife and asked her what he should do, and she said, well, go see the rabbi. And after arguing with her for a bit about it, he decided to finally go. So the rabbi greeted him and said, you know, I see something is troubling you. Whatever it is, you can tell me. And so this poor man told the rabbi how miserable things were at home for him, his wife and his six children. They're all eating and living and sleeping in one room. And, you know, he told them, you know, we're, we're even starting to yell and fight with each other. Life couldn't be worse. So the rabbi thought very deeply about this man's problem. And he said, do exactly as I tell you and things will get better. Do you promise? The man promised. And then the rabbi asks the man a question. He says, do you own any animals? The man says, yes, I have a cow and a goat and some chickens. And the rabbi says, good. When you get home, take all the animals you own and bring them into the house to live with you. Now, the man was astonished to hear the advice of the rabbi, but he had promised to do exactly what the rabbi had said. So he went home and took all the farm animals into his tiny one-room house, as well as his wife and his six kids. And the next day, this man comes back to see the rabbi, and he says, you know, what have you done to me, rabbi? You know, this is awful. I did what you told me to do, and the animals are all over the house. Rabbi, please help me. So the rabbi listened and said calmly, all right, now go home and take the chickens back outside. So the poor man goes home, uh, takes the chickens out, and hurries back the next day. He says, you know, the chickens are gone, but, but the goat, you know, the goat is smashing up all the furniture, and it eats everything in sight. And the rabbi says, okay, go home and take the goat out. Bring it outside again. So this man goes home and he takes the goat outside and he runs back in again to see the rabbi. And the next day saying, you know, what a nightmare this is. You know, the cow, the cow is, it's so big. It takes up so much room. And it's like living in a stable. Like it's a mess everywhere. It smells terribly. You know, I don't, I don't think humans can live like this for long. And so the rabbi says, 
you know, you're right. Uh, go home and take the cow out of your house. So the poor man, he goes back home, he takes the cow out of the house, and him and his wife and his six kids go back into the house. No animals now. And the next day he comes back to the rabbi saying, oh, rabbi, you know, we have such a good life now. The animals are all gone. The house is so quiet. We've got so much room to spare. You know, it smells nice again. You know, life is good. And so today I want to make you aware of a lot of maybe undesirable things in your life. I'm going to throw some animals into your small house, if you will, in order that you might see what you have and I hope appreciate it more. That means that if you don't like my sermon uh, halfway through, you might want to wait till the end. Otherwise, you might get stuck with some animals in your house. And this sermon really started because about a month ago, I was talking to my 14-year-old daughter uh, a few weeks before she got baptized. And it was just a conversation that sort of sprung up while we were cleaning up the kitchen, doing dishes, putting leftovers away, etc. And I think those are kind of the best conversations. You know, this one lasted about three hours. Uh, We were working pretty slow to clean up the kitchen, to be honest. And we were having fun talking. And we talked about all sorts of things. We talked about theology and church doctrine and how they integrate with life and about personal integrity and a whole bunch of things. And the whole thing started with her being curious as to why people don't think about what they think. And now that's a whole topic in and of itself, and I'm not going to get into it. But during the conversation, one of the topics we tripped across was the dichotomy, um, that is the two opposing ideas, that we are both wretched sinners worthy of nothing but death while we're also so loved and valued that it was worth Christ dying for us and more. And I thought that discussion might be of interest to some, uh, in particular, particular, why that dichotomy, I think, needs to exist. Because I think it's crucial, not only for our walk with God, but also to our psyche as Christians. I started writing about this idea, and I kept tripping over another dichotomy, you know, um, the balance of grace and the law, which I think are predecessors to the concept of sin and grace. In fact, the more I tried to avoid discussing grace and the law, the more I kept running into it. So I stopped trying to avoid it. Uh, so we're going to tackle it all at once. We're gonna, I'm going to try to explain the balance of grace and the law, God's love for us and our wretchedness, but for a very specific reason, to show the implication of what happens when you don't understand that balance. Because I think that happens a lot. And I think it hurts a lot of people. Now, I grew up in a a denomination that taught a lot about grace, uh, but almost nothing about the law. When I was a teenager, I was taught that you are saved not quite by grace, because grace implies some directed goodwill, but more like some arbitrary lottery that you never entered. And there was nothing that could be done to change your status. You know, the metaphor was that... um, all, it's as if all the souls were a waterfall and God reached out to save a random handful of them from falling over the edge into eternal damnation and torture. And if you were chosen, then you could not even reject God if you tried. And as such, to be honest, I'm not sure I really appreciated salvation when I was growing up. I mean, why would you? You had nothing to do with it. Um, the, the church I grew up in taught that I hadn't chosen God. In fact, I had no free will of my own. And so nothing I did really made any difference whatsoever. Arguably, the sins that I committed weren't my own, but that of the God that programmed me. Now, many of my friends who grew up in the church that I'm now um, had a quite an, the opposite upbringing. 
you know, some were taught the law so strongly that they very much understood why we needed grace, but many struggled to believe that they were in fact saved. For them, salvation was so tightly bound to what they did that they never quite they were never quite sure it was enough, that they did enough. And these are the problems that rise when we weigh too heavily on the side of grace or of the law, when we either teach one side of this equation more than the other or vice versa. I think the answer is that the two need to be balanced perfectly. Too much on one side and a savior isn't necessarily appreciated. Too much on the other side and a savior isn't enough. So today I want to take a look at this dichotomy, these two opposing ideas, to try and understand how they can both come from the same God, a God who both condemns and saves you, uh, why it's important to recognize this, and through that explain why it's going to be okay. So why do we need the law? Well, in short, I don't think the law was for us, or at least it's not only for us. I think it pre-exists us as humanity. I think the things that we commonly call the law, like the Ten Commandments and such, are not actually the law. And now that might sound sacrilegious to say to some, but I think that they're actually just an application of the law. I think the law in its essence is simple. Do good. You could also say love. You know, I think those two are synonymous. Uh, they mean the same thing. I think it starts with God being loving, in short, being good. And being good, he created beings with free will because control is not loving. In other words, it's not good. However, this creates a problem. Because as soon as he did that, as soon as he created a being with free will, the concept of evil entered the universe. And that's not the same thing as saying God created evil. I, I, in fact, I don't think evil is a thing. I think it's the opposite of a thing. I think the word evil is basically shorthand for not good or not loving. And to illustrate this idea, uh, imagine that no one had ever created something called a mug, you know, like a coffee mug. If there was never any such thing as a mug, there would be no concept of something not being a mug. No one would ever look at a cup and go, well, that's not a mug, because a mug wouldn't be a thing yet. But as soon as someone creates a mug, now there is such a thing as not a mug. And in the same way, evil evil is not something that was created, I don't think, but rather it was a byproduct of there being good and there being choice. The same thing happened when God created light. Suddenly there was darkness. God didn't create the darkness. Darkness isn't a thing. It's merely the absence of light. You can't make something more dark. You can only make it less light. You know, you can't measure darkness, uh, only how little light there is. And in the same way, a vacuum, like the vacuum of space, doesn't really exist. It's merely the absence of matter. So, evil doesn't exist, exist except as a shorthand for something that's not good. So then, we have good and we have evil, which is the absence of good. So how do you know something is good? How do you know if it's not good? Some might say that you just know it. Uh, to that, I immediately think, no, we don't because we clearly can't tell by ourselves. That's like asking someone who is drunk if they're okay to drive. They might guess correctly sometimes, but there's a good chance they won't. I certainly wouldn't want to trust them with the answer. And human history is full of acts of evil committed by people who thought they were doing good. Um, even being a Christian isn't a solution. Believing that the Holy Spirit will guide you isn't even a solution, as much as we'd like 
it to be. You know, our history has Christians killing non-Christians and Christians alike in the name of good and God. The Crusaders often shouted the phrase, Deus volt, God wills it, while killing their enemies. And of course, every Christian who hears that immediately, immediately thinks as a defense, well, they weren't really Christians. After all, how can you be claimed to be a Christian and brutally murder people, right? But then, how do you know they weren't really Christians? Well, we know many of the fighters in the Crusades were actually criminals that were conscripted rather than face their punishment. So yes, very likely many of them weren't quote-unquote real Christians. But what about the rest? Well, ultimately, we mean when we say that they weren't real Christians, that they weren't following the law they claimed to follow. Even Christians who don't believe in the law will still use it as a standard for what is good and evil because that is how we know something is good or evil, by whether or not it follows God's laws. How do we know this? From Romans 7 verse 12. You know, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. You know, good is in keeping with the law. Evil is not in keeping with the law. 1 John 3 verse 4 says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. So the law is a guide to show us when we're out of bounds, to tell us when something is not good. In short, the law tells us what is evil. It tells us when we sin because sinning is simply doing what is not good. So then what does this law teach us about ourselves? Well, it shows us just how evil we are, because try as we might, we cannot follow the law. All Christians everywhere claim to do their best to love each other, but we don't. Not really. Watch almost any two Christians debate theology and tell me whom they love based on their exchange. Usually it's not very clear that we love our opponent. Uh, many times it's not even clear that we love God. What we typically love is our own ideas. And so this law shows us how sinful we are. It shows us how evil we are. And some time ago, uh, my pastor asked, acted out a, a great illustration of this. Uh, on the stage, he went behind a curtain and uh, claimed that he was sinning in some vague way. And when he came out, his face was covered in dirt. It was symbolic of the sin he decreed while sinning. And he happily walked around, supposedly ignorant of all the dirt all over his face. And he was blissful in his ignorance of his sin until he happened across a mirror. And then he realized how dirty he was. In other words, how sinful he was. And that's what the law does. You know, by showing us what sin is, it shows us how sinful we are. And many Christians will claim that this law is done away with, that it was nailed to the cross, that we no, no longer need it anymore because Christ came. However, if you take a few minutes to think this through, you know that's not true. All the atrocities Christians have committed, they committed not only in God's name, but in Christ's name, since his death and resurrection. They still did evil things. Paul certainly didn't think the law was useless or done away with when he wrote in Romans 7, verse 7, uh, What shall we say, say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the, on the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would have not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. Now that is Paul writing some 20 to 30 years after Christ died and rose again. After Pentecost, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he still felt the law was there to show us what sin is, to show us how wretched we are. In fact, the more we read the Bible, the more we are taught about that law, and the more we realize just how bad we are, because God's law is holy and good. And by comparison, we realize how unholy, 
unholy, and not good we are. The more we think about that law, the more wretched we become. It's like getting a better mirror. Uh, We can see more of the dirt. And we see Paul experience this in his writings. The more he studies and learns, the more wretched he becomes. Eventually, he reaches this point in Timothy 1 verse 15. He says, This is the faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. You know, Paul considered himself the worst of all sinners. And this is what the law does for you. It shows you where you are not in line with God. It shows you where you are not good. And that's important to know because sin is very serious. Romans 6 verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin are death. A single offense is punishable by death. And we stack them up each and every day. So, what does this law tell us about who we are? Well, we believe there is a God who created our universe and everything in it. A God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving. We claim to want to live with that God for eternity, to follow his every command because they are good, both for mankind and for ourselves. This is what we claim to believe. So, do you believe? We like to think that we do. You know, we sit in churches or at homes or in your car listening to this podcast or whatever you're doing, um, saying that we do. But the law shows us that we are all liars and hypocrites. We don't really believe God is who he said he is. If we did, we would actually do what we claim to believe, wouldn't we? You know, we put other things ahead of God in the hierarchies of our lives. We don't take him seriously. We don't follow his commandments, his laws. We are not kind to our neighbors. We are not even kind to ourselves much of the time. And let me ask you, if someone were privy to all the things you do in your life, would they conclude that you're a Christian? Or would they conclude that you occasionally visit a church or watch a sermon online, or maybe give them some money for some obscure, maybe even ironic reason? And this is why the world laughs at us when we claim to believe in God, because we certainly don't act like it. Uh, That's just based on our actions. What about our thoughts? What about the things that go on in that terrible thing you call a mind? You know, what atrocities have you committed in your fantasies? Uh, Which of us hasn't had a time when we thought, oh, I could just kill that guy for stupid things like cutting us off in traffic or accidentally stepping on our toes or bumping into us and making us spill our drink? All clearly crimes worthy of immediate execution. You know, we are frankly horrible, terrible beings bent on the destruction of ourselves and others. In fact, the more that we think that we are good, the worse we tend to get. Uh, The Crusades, the World Wars, slavery in general, all prove that well enough, I think. Every time that we think we're the best, we seem to think that means everyone else isn't really worth having around. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And the point is that we are all capable of atrocities as humans, and claiming to be a Christian doesn't mean that capability suddenly goes away. In fact, I think it means that we have to be even more vigilant because you can do almost anything if you believe that God is telling you to do it, or even if you think he's on your side, rather than you being worried about being on his side. And this is the largest argument atheists have against religion, to point to all the horrible things that Christians have done and continue to do. Bertrand Russell, a British philosopher, wrote, you know, that is the idea, that we should all be wicked if we did not hold to the Christian religion. It seems to me that the people who have held to it have been the most, been for the most part extremely wicked. You find this curious fact that the more intense has been the religion of any period, the more profound has been the domatic, domatic belief, the greater has been the cruelty, and the worse has been the state of affairs. In this so-called ages of faith, 
when men really did believe in the Christian religion in all its completeness, there was the Inquisition with all its tortures, there were the millions of unfortunate women burned as witches, and there was every kind of cruelty practiced upon all sorts of people in the name of religion. And he's right. You know, during the 10th century, the church taught that if you were a knight, you could achieve forgiveness of sins through battle. You know, they created the concept of the holy war, uh, one that conveyed spiritual merit on those who fought in it. In short, killing people was how you attained salvation. As such, Christians led the Spanish, Portuguese, Mexican, Roman, Goa inquisitions during which thousands were killed and even more imprisoned. The witch trials resulted in executions of some 60, 40 to 60,000 people, again, by Christians. And on top of all this, the vast majority of Christians prior to the late 15th century believed that enslaving other races was consistent with Christian theology. You know, the evil that has infected us almost from the beginning is far darker than most of us want to admit. The first sin recorded was basically the choice to eat a piece of fruit, albeit against God's personal, personally expressed command. The second sin recorded was a man being murdered by his own brother. You know, that's quite an escalation, particularly for a man whose parents literally walked and talked with God. You know, his mother and father literally had been closer to God than any of us hope to be in this life. If you aren't careful about knowing that law that tells you right from wrong, then there's a real danger that you won't recognize the difference between what you think is right and what God thinks is right. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and that is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, we don't like to think about what sort of evil we're capable of, because if we take too much to think about it, it might break us. In fact, the only way the Bible says that we can do good is to not act like ourselves. We have to be Christ-like. Any impulse that we have that we think we should do, we should not do. Instead, we should ask, what would Jesus do? And then do that. And even with that, we still manage to get it wrong a lot of the time. Now that leaves us with a problem. How do we deal with that? How do you deal with the soul-crushing realization that you have the potential in you to be a monster, and that even if you don't commit atrocities, we commit evil against other people, against God, every single day, each one worthy of death? You know, Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as, though, as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sins, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. You know, how do you deal with the fact that because we claim to believe in a loving God, that we claim to follow him no less, the fact that we do not act lovingly condemns us as the worst sort of hypocrites? Not only do we obey him on a day-to-day basis, we actively work against him because any sin, any breaking of his law is by definition of act in direct opposition to God. You know, Matthew 15 verse 7 to 8 says, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Romans 9 verses 10 to 12, which I'm not going to read the whole thing, even seems to suggest that we could sin before we are born. You know, And so from our earliest moments, we find that we commit treason against the creator of the universe, whom we claim as God. You know, And that, I think, is why Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23, you know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have, 
have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to you, to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And that's all of us. So how do you deal with that? Now, if you remember the story way back at the beginning about the man with all the chickens in the small house, these are the chickens and the goat and the cow that I've just thrown into your house. If you feel a little miserable, you're exactly where you should be. So let's start taking them out again so we can experience freedom again. Now, hopefully by this point, why we need grace is obvious. We need grace because we will never measure up on our own. Romans 3 verses 11, 20 says, you know, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks gods. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You know, if eternal paradise is for perfect people, you're not going to get there on your own ticket. There is nothing you can do to earn it. In fact, the more you try, the more you do, the more you sin, invalidating your entry. The harder you try to be good, the less good you are. So what is the answer Christianity has to this problem of ours? Well, the answer is grace, of course. You know, Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In short, now, while entrance to the paradise requires perfection, it doesn't require your perfection. You don't get there on your own works because your works aren't good enough. Uh, they're not good enough to undo all the sin that you have done. Quite the opposite, in fact. Your own works only add to the sin. It's like trying to get out of debt by paying a loan with a credit card. You're not getting rid of your debt. You're only digging a deeper financial hole. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. You know, trying to pay off the sin in your life is like trying to clean up a mess with rags that are already filthy. You're just going to make the mess worse. Romans 6 verse 18 says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. You know. Now, I've been accused of being a why person uh, all my life. Uh, I never quite outgrew the toddler phase of asking why. Not just once, but continuously until I get to the base reason. I want to know the reason for everything. And this has recently left me with an uncomfortable feeling. Why is it that all we can do is sin more? Why can't we work off our debt? Why is grace the only way? And the canned answer, of course, is because we have a sinful nature. But why do we have a sinful nature? You get another canned answer. Because Adam and Eve sinned. And most of of Christianity agrees, Adam and Eve sinned, and because of that, we all have a sinful nature. And it's no wonder. Romans 5 verse 12 says, 
Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sins, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. We already read that before. But that doesn't really explain it. That only describes what happened. It's a bit like asking why a car works and being told, if you hit the gas pedal, it accelerates. That's how it works, but it's not why it works. So what is the why? And for what purpose do we have a sinful nature? Now, I get a lot of people telling me that it's a natural consequence of sin, that there's no purpose, but if if that's the case, then what's the mechanism? There doesn't seem to be anything in Adam and Eve's choice to eat a piece of fruit that somehow innately and naturally broke humanity somehow, so that we have an arguably impossible-to-resist handicap when it comes to sin. I asked a lot of people this question in the last couple of weeks. Uh, some argue that there's no sinful nature, but rather just a series of bad decisions that cascade into life as we know it now. That it's not that we have a sinful nature, it's just that we have thousands of years of bad decisions weighing on us. However, if that was the case, then we would expect sin to grow slowly, rather than explode immediately right after the fall, which is what we see in the Bible. The following generations are so full of sin that God decides to destroy the earth and start over. The point is, sin didn't slowly creep in, steadily growing. It hit us full force. So the argument that our sinful nature is simply a natural consequence of sin stacked up on top of each other doesn't make much sense to me. No, rather, I think our sinful nature was given to us by design. And that's not a popular opinion, because it means that God set us up to fail. In fact, I had one person tell me that if that was the case, there was no way he could continue to worship God, a God who did that. But I think God did this because there was no other way to ensure that when all is said and done, when Judgment Day comes and goes, when sin is destroyed, that it would stay gone. I think this is the only way for it to work. And it's not unprecedented in the Bible to allow evil things to happen in order that good might be finally triumphant. The Bible is full of examples of God either letting bad things happen to his people, or sometimes even flat out saying he will cause them in order that they might learn something important. Sometimes it's not even the person who gets hurt that has to learn the lesson. A prime example is Lazarus. If you don't know the story, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus who got sick. And when Jesus got the news, rather than hurrying to cure Lazarus, the Bible says he tarried. He took his time. He stayed where he was another couple of days. Until, in the course of events, Lazarus finally died. It takes Jesus another two days to get there. Now, Jesus does finally go visit him. He calls Lazarus out of the grave, and Lazarus is resurrected. So why did he wait? Why make Lazarus suffer? Why make his family mourn? And just to recap, Jesus found out about Lazarus being sick. Seemingly, he knew he was going to die. You know, he could have left immediately upon hearing it and still gotten there just as he died and still resurrected him. Uh, but no, he decided to wait until he could make sure that Lazarus was good and dead a couple of days before showing up. Why? Jesus' answer in John 11 verse 4 is, For the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. And then he also said, You know, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. And it's not that Jesus wasn't is uncompassionate. Uh, the death of his friend moves him greatly. This is one of only three times in the Bible that explicitly tells us that Jesus cried. So do not think that it was a cold, calculated move. It cut him deeply. Yet, he was willing to do it in order to further the goal of saving people. This is merely one example of many in the Bible where God is willing to do something that we might find distasteful in order 
that the ultimate good might be achieved. Now, Romans 11 verses 30 to 33 says, For as you were once disobedient in God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also might obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths and the riches both of wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. When Adam and Eve sinned, God's response seems to be to agree and escalate, as if he said, oh, you think that's a better way? All right, I'll show you how this plays out. And I think that's uncomfortable for many because uh, the ends justify the means has always been considered an immoral position. That's the position of bad guys in movies. How can it be what God appears to do? Now, the standard answer to this is God is God and can do whatever he wishes, and that makes it moral. Sort of an how dare you question God retaliation. Frankly, I think that's a terrible answer because if God is loving, then God sets a standard for love and then God has to live up to that same standard. So then, why is it that the ends justify the means for God and not for us? Uh, I think there's two reasons. Uh, One is that God actually knows everything. We as humans may strive for an outcome, but he can actually orchestrate one. It's one of those benefits of existing outside of time. And the second is that God experienced what it means to be the means that is justified. In other words, he chose to be born a human to experience life, to suffer the pain of our sin, and to die in a horrific death. In short, he's suffering alongside of us all. He's not asking others to suffer for his desired end. He's suffering with us for that desired end. No sinful human can claim those two things. And so we have a God that can justly allow all of us, including himself, to suffer in order that ultimately good may prevail, not in a cold and calculating way, but being with us every step of the way, feeling what we feel, agonizing with us, and wishing there was a better way to remove even the possibility from sin from the universe, but ultimately knowing that there isn't. You know, he hates sin and loves us so much that he's willing to be subject to this. Romans 1 verses 18 to 32 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creepy things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over for to a debased mind, to those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, 
deceit, and evil-mindedness. And you might think, oh, well, I'm not those things. But the list keeps going. You know, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to their parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. I think God did this to us purposefully, and if he did it, it must be for our own good, because I believe that he is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving. Therefore, this must be the best way to do it, right? But that still only describes the what. So again, why? I think the answer is that the only way to ensure that there is no sin in paradise while still letting people have free will is that we need to have experienced sin on a personal level so that we will have a strong desire not to let sin happen again, even if that means giving up everything else with it, because we don't know anything else except for a sinful world. Everything we hold dear is tainted by it. In order to be happy for eternity, we need to be willing to take nothing of this life with us, to leave it all behind. Terry Pratchett once wrote, you know, people couldn't become truly holy, he said, unless they had the opportunity to become definitively wicked. I believe that we have to have seen just how miserably destructive sin is and then say, I don't want that. And you can only get to that point if you have personally experienced it as a sinner. We don't learn from other people well enough because we have a tendency to believe that we would have done better if we were in their situation. But you won't. While writing the sermon, I thought of the story of the prodigal son uh, again as well. If you don't know the story, it's of a man who has two sons who live at home with him and help manage what seems to be a fairly wealthy estate. The first son decides he wants to go out and see what the world has to offer. So he asks for his share of the inheritance, strikes out, and basically spends all the money quickly, ending up poor and hungry. After taking some menial job and not even making enough money to eat properly, he decides to go go home and beg his father to hire him back as a servant. Coming home, his father accepts him gladly, but the second son is livid that this selfish, wretched brother would dare return. What if this story is an explanation? What if the son was a man who had seen sin and decided he wanted no part in it, but wanted to come home with humility, understanding he needed salvation? who wanted to live in paradise, never having to wonder if there was anything better out there again, because he'd seen that there wasn't. However, the second son, who stayed at home, having everything he could ever want, never experienced life outside of paradise. He became angry that the first son was accepted. Despite having everything, he is prideful, discontented, even envious. It seems to be the fate of some of those who never experienced their sinful existence, they manifest sin on their own. We have only looked to look at Lucifer's rebellion as evidence of that. Here's an archangel created blameless, without a sinful nature, perfect in every way, existing in the presence of God himself, given a position of power, and he thought, I could be God. You know, Ezekiel wrote of Satan, You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And Adam and Eve didn't fare much better as humans. I don't think we would have either in the same position. I think we needed a way to both experience sin personally as a sinful person and then to still somehow manage to gain entry to eternal, sinless paradise. 
But those two things are mutually exclusive. You cannot both be sinful and manage to exist in a sinless, eternal paradise. And so Jesus came. He died for us, paying for our sins. He paid that debt that we would incur. He took that punishment so that we can be free from the cost of our learning. We got a PhD in sin and had our student debt paid for by Christ. So what do we learn from that extraordinary display of grace? I think it means something. You know, I think it teaches us something about us. It tells us that we have some intrinsic value, that there is something about us not tied to our works that gives us worth. After all, our works are worthless, arguably less than worthless. So there has to be something about us, something that we didn't do, that makes this all worthwhile. And that's fairly monumental. And I think it's more than most Christians realize. Today, Christianity largely worships God for Jesus dying on the cross. That's the focus of most of our songs, sermons, evangelism, etc. But I think this goes way beyond that. I think sometimes we limit what God did by focusing only on the cross. Because it's not just that Jesus woke up one day and said, Oh, the humans have made a mess, but they're worth dying for, so I think I'll go do that. Uh, Rather, God took the effort to create us in the first place, knowing ahead of time that this would be the situation. He created angels, humans, earth, everything, knowing that we would destroy ourselves and the rest of creation and need to be saved. He created all this with the foreknowledge that that it would all need to be burned away. God bothered to create an entire planet knowing it would be destroyed by the people he was creating it for because an infinitesimally small portion of them, a remnant of a remnant, would understand the very simple but infinitely weighty point that sin is not good. All so that he could be with us in a sinless creation one day. And so it seems to me that God decided before there was even space and time that all of it, all the misery of our world, the war in heaven, the pre-flood chaos, the crusades, the world wars, even COVID-19, and whatever else is still coming, that it was all worth experiencing in order to be able to spend eternity with you, personally. And that's something to think about. Really, just take a moment and meditate on that. Do you realize how much you are worth to God? He didn't just die for you. He created for you. He suffered for you even before the cross. He let everyone, including himself, including you, suffer for you. Not in a this-is-all-your-fault sort of way, but in an authentic, you-are-worth-all-of-this expression of love. That is more pain and suffering that we each could have experienced in billions, perhaps trillions of lifetimes. And God, perfect, omnipotent, and loving being that he is, decided it was worth it. He decided you were worth it. And not because you're a good person, because you're not. And not because of anything you have done or will do, because, frankly, it's all worthless. But rather, it's because of who you are. Whatever that means. I'm honestly not entirely sure. But it's something. And so we have two radically opposing calculations here. On the one hand, we're terrible, horrible, worthless beings that can't do anything right on our own. In fact, everything we do just adds to the debt against us. And on the other hand, you have so much worth as a person just because of who you are that God believes spending eternity with you is worth all the pain and suffering of the entire world, its history, present, and future. Those are radically opposing calculations for your worth as an individual. And you have to hold them perfectly in balance. 
Why? Because if your belief about these things is not in balance, then your theology will cause you trouble in your daily life. If you believe the first truth, that you are a worthless creature, wretched in every way, that everything you do leads to destruction, that even when you do good, it will be tainted by sin. If all you have is that, then you are stuck with the incredible guilt that comes with being a sinful person and realizing that you are one. And it's unbearable. For many, they can't accept salvation because they don't believe they should. Why would God want someone so terrible anyways? If you don't believe there is something worthwhile in you, then you can never believe that God would love you enough to accept your surrender. Even if you believe it to be more true than the second truth, then you will struggle to accept that Christ's death was enough for you to be loved. And you might find that you spend your time trying to make up the difference, trying to be just that little bit better to sweeten the deal, becoming a perfectionist, hoping that one day you might actually do something good, something to offset that terrible debt. In short, you may never really accept what Jesus did because you don't believe it's enough. So that's bad. But what if you go to the other way? What if you believe that you have inestimable worth, that God felt that you were worth all the pain and suffering in the world just to be able to spend eternity with you? If you don't balance that by accepting the consequences of your sinful nature, well, then you don't need a savior. Why would you? There's nothing wrong with you. You're just an incredibly valuable and God wants you, so clearly you don't have any problems. Or at least your problems are easily offset by how valuable you are. I mean, yeah, Jesus died, but it's because you wanted to, not because you really needed him to. Even if you believe this to be more true than your sinful state, then you have problems, because you will never really appreciate what Christ did for you. You will never be that beggar, that never have that humility that we need in order to accept salvation. So we have to hold these two thoughts equally, that we are horrible, wretched creatures who cannot do anything right on our own, and, despite all that, God loves you so much that it was worth creating a world that would be corrupted and need to be redeemed by sending a son to die and pay the cost. So what does this mean for us? Well, I find this incredibly encouraging myself because it means that no matter what I do, it will never be good enough, and it doesn't matter. That leaves me free to strive to be the best that I can without having to worry about the risk of failure. There is a massive safety net of knowing that no matter how badly I fail at it, God still loves me. So I can focus on being more Christ-like out of love, out of thankfulness for what he did, not out of any sense of obligation or working off my debt or anything else. Secondly, whatever comes my way, be it COVID or cancer, trials or tribulations, ill treatment or imprisonment, persecution or just pestering, I believe that God thought it was worth it all to spend eternity with me and with you. So how can I not think it's all worth it to spend eternity with him?